Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? There's a growing movement of Christians called abortion abolitionists. These Christians are pro-life, but not in the way that you typically think of what it means to be pro-life. In fact, abortion abolitionists have some controversial views that have put them in conflict with traditional national pro-life organizations. Today, we're talking with Bradley Pierce, who I think is the best representative of abortion abolitionism that I'm familiar with. He's a constitutional lawyer in Texas and part of a group called the Foundation to Abolish Abortion. I think you'll hear in the conversation that I am not ultimately convinced by his argument, but I learned a lot from talking with Bradley, and he will definitely leave you with a lot to think about. Bradley Pierce, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. We are talking abortion today, which is obviously a very controversial topic. And you're going to share with us a perspective that I think is going to be new to a lot of people who are listening. And I specifically wanted to talk to you about this topic because I think you're the best representative of a position called abortion abolitionism, at least the best one that I have heard. And so if you haven't heard of an abortion abolitionist, don't worry, Bradley's going to unpack and explain all that in the course of our conversation. But Bradley, knowing that we're going to talk about this controversial topic, I think it'd just be good to get to know a little bit about you. Could you just introduce yourself to us? Who are you? What do you do? Why is the issue of abortion something you're passionate about? Yeah, so, well, there's a lot there. I mean, the most important thing about me is that I'm a Christian saved by the grace of God. That's my only hope. I'm a father, a husband to my wife, Cindy. We have we're actually expecting number 11 right now. So we have a very busy, 11 a busy house. Yes. Yep. I have four and I thought that was a lot. <laughs> You've almost tripled me. One makes for busyness. That's true. So they're all a handful, right? But a handful of blessings. What are the age ranges? Our oldest is 12. And okay. then we have, yeah, I know you're doing the math in your head right now. <laughs> yeah, are there twins in here or adopted children? There are two sets of twins in there. No adopted children, although we certainly be open to that. Uh, but no, we have two sets of twins in there. So yeah, that's how we got to 11 so fast. So what's your job when you have time to work? I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law for the last 15 years, coming up on 16 years, actually and do constitutional law, a lot of parental rights stuff. And then I also, about seven years ago, really got into the abolitionist movement and fighting for preborn children. So that's kind of what I do here. Is that with an organization, your work on behalf of children? Is that with an organization or is that just something you do privately in, in your practice or what? It's with a couple of organizations. So about seven years ago, some others and I launched an organization called Abolish Abortion Texas to work right here in my home state. But then we also now we actually have a separate organization called the Foundation to Abolish Abortion. And that's what we do. We work beyond Texas, all around the country, drafting legislation to abolish abortion, working with other groups and other states, other national organizations as well, just helping however we can kind of from a legal perspective, while at the same time, not divorcing the legal from also the biblical and doing so as a Christian as well. So that's what we do around the country. How did you become so passionate about abortion? Like, is there a story that pulled you in or is it something that dates back as long as you can remember that you're passionate about this issue? Clearly, with legal practice, you've got plenty to do with your family and all. So why spend so much time on this? Why is this a big deal to you? 
I don't know if there's any one particular story. I mean, maybe a few different stories along the way, but you know, I was always raised pro-life Christian. My parents were pro-life raising a Christian home. Um, and you know, had lots of, you know, experiences. And the more I looked into it, the more I kind of made it my own that, Hey, yeah, I believe that life begins at conception that we should be protecting that life from there. I think that's what the Bible says. Maybe a couple stories. I really kind of got more passionate about this. I saw in Texas some bills that were going on, some pro-life bills that I really felt like compromised on when life begins and how we should protect that life and conceded some principles. And then I also, my wife and I, we've actually had four miscarriages and just seeing that life lost at such an early age. I mean, that's a human being right there. I mean, we were all right there. And then in 2016, some friends and I decided, you know what, we need to kind of put our money where our mouth is, put our time where our mouth is, and not just be pro-life in the sense that we believe something about life, but actually put action with that. And, you know, of course, I'm an attorney. And so naturally, okay, what's the gifting that God's given me or the opportunity he's given me as an attorney? So I drafted some legislation. We started working here in the Republican Party in our state and just kind of took off from there. And we've really tried to approach it. If the law were protecting lives in the womb the same ways as our lives outside of the womb, what would the law look like? And that's the way we've tried to approach it. Last year, Roe was overturned. And I think when that happened and the Supreme Court made that decision and the issue of abortion went back to the states, most of us, at least me, thought that what was going to play out is that the blue states were going to codify a more progressive or liberal abortion laws and more red states would either make abortion more and more restrictive or outlaw it being it altogether. And to some extent, that's happened. But whenever abortion has gone on the ballot, even of states like Kentucky or Kansas that are traditionally red states, what we've found is that the people at the ballot box, well, they haven't gone with the more restrictive abortion laws that I think we expected. Is that a surprise to you that that's the way it's played out since Roe was overturned? Why is it that states like Kansas, Kentucky, and others haven't come up with more restrictive abortion laws when it's been on the ballot? Like Kansas was right after the Dobbs case. The Dobbs case overturned Roe versus Wade, and actually our organization, we got to lead 20 other organizations, 20 state legislators. We filed a brief in that case. We were calling for the court to overturn Roe, which they did. We're grateful for that. But we were also calling for them to go further and not just leave it to the states or the court actually put it to the people's representatives. So it could be the states or Congress, but to actually find under the 14th Amendment that a fetus is a person. Therefore, they're entitled to equal protection of the laws. So that's what we were arguing. The court didn't go that far yet. Hopefully they will at some point. There's certainly plenty of blue states that are codifying row or worse than row into their constitutions and laws. But then there's states like Kansas and Kentucky and others that it's not as much that they're codifying row necessarily. Kansas, their Supreme Court had kind of found a right to an abortion in their own constitution. And so this would have overturned that. So a lot of it's just kind of the status quo. People just kind of stick with the status quo and trying to override the status quo is difficult. The stuff that, you know, in Kentucky didn't pass, but at the same time, it didn't really change the status quo there. So I think that the Kansas thing, a lot of people were caught flat footed on that. It was very quickly after the Dobbs and a lot of the pro-abortion movement, they mobilized quickly and they acted quickly. Whereas I think a lot of the pro-life movement was still just kind of celebrating Dobbs and perhaps resting on their laurels a little too much. But, you know, there's a lot of factors at play. Well, I consider myself pro-life, and that won't be a surprise to anyone who's listened to some of our episodes where we've talked about abortion. And I was surprised. I thought that states like Kentucky, and no need to pick on that particular state because it's been true in other places as well, but when given the opportunity, the people of Kentucky or these red states would make abortion harder to get, if not eliminate it altogether. And it hasn't happened. And I'm wondering if that means that people who were saying they were pro-life You know, when the telephone rang and they picked it up and they answered the poll questions and said, I'm pro-life, if they really meant it or not, because then when they have the chance to vote on it, it seems like they're voting different. Now, I don't know what's in anybody's mind or heart when they fill out these polls. It just, maybe the polls were inaccurate and there's not as many pro-life people as we thought they were. Do you think I'm wrong in wondering about that? 
I mean, it's possible. You know, it's one thing whenever the Supreme Court says, hey, this is what, according to them, the law of the land is. And so in some ways, people don't really have formulated opinions because they feel like their opinions don't really matter anyway. And so it's only once your opinion matters that I think people start thinking about it a lot more. I think there's also that after Dobbs, the pro-abortion movement is way more activated. They just saw a major defeat and they just saw something major happen, whereas the pro-life movement is much more, hey, we won, right? This is what we've been fighting for for 50 years. And so I think maybe it's gone to sleep a little bit. And I'm talking about like the average pro-life voter. I think the average pro-life voter feels like, hey, we already won here. What else do we need to do? So I think the pro-abortion side is able to turn out their voters a lot more right now. Well, you're right. We're in a moment where when you feel like you're in the losing end, then your voters get all ginned up to go to the ballot box. And if you feel like you are, you know, maybe in the driver's seat now, then maybe you're not as activated. Probably a lot of people didn't understand what overturning Roe v. Wade meant. I think a lot of people thought that meant abortion was going to be outlawed, which obviously, as you've already alluded to, that's not at all what happened. Okay, so I promise we're going to get to abortion abolitionism in just a second. But first, I want to throw out a thought experiment to you, okay? So you've probably come across this before. I came across it through a woman named Kate Greasley, who is an Oxford law professor and specializes in legal and moral philosophy of abortion. So let me see if I can explain it and get your take on it. The idea is, imagine you are walking by a clinic and there's a fire, a hospital, let's say, and you run inside the clinic and you have the opportunity to save either one baby or five fetuses, five embryos fertilized eggs, what we would call you and I human beings. And you don't know anyone in this clinic, right? You're just walking by when this fire. What would you do if you were in that situation? Do you think you would go save the six month old that's probably crying? Or do you think you'd go save those five embryos, those five fetuses, those five preborn children? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, before getting to the specific what I would do in that situation, I don't think it's a helpful hypothetical. I've heard it before. I've heard this one before. I expect you to I think like anything, right? If you're going into a burning building to save people, you're automatically triaging, you know, who can I help the quickest? You know, you're triaging in your mind what's going to be the best situation and who can I help the fastest and the most and all of that. So it's not really a question of, do I consider these human beings and these not human beings, right? If I save a four-year-old instead of a 40-year-old, it doesn't mean that I don't think the 40-year-old is a human being. It means that, hey, I think it's going to be a little bit easier to save the four-year-old because they're a little easier to carry or what have you, right? You go through whatever reasons. So I just don't think it's a helpful hypothetical. I think probably most people are going to save the born child right? Because that's easier in a sense. The child doesn't need any kind of extraordinary care, that there's more guarantee that if you save that child, that that child is going to continue to live. Whereas the embryos, then you have to find people who are willing to adopt them and implant them. And even their implantation, there's a low likelihood of success and things like that. So I think all of those things can go through your mind and you can make the decision to choose to save the born child, but that doesn't in any way dehumanize the children who are not yet born, or that doesn't mean that they're any less valuable. I think those are good answers. I asked this at our family dinner table. My kids range from 21 to 28, and they have spouses and significant others and all sitting around. So there's usually 10 of us when we sit around, and I ask this question, and I think it's safe to say that everybody at that table considers themselves pro-life, and yet you find this instinct in you to save the one child instead of the embryos, the fetuses, but I'm pretty sure that the Bible teaches that those are children. And it makes me wonder, why is there that tug in my heart? Do I not really believe what I say I believe? And I think, like you said, what I like most about what you said there is when you said, just because you save the four-year-old instead of the 40-year-old, it doesn't mean that you don't think the 40-year-old's a person, but your instincts take over and you do whatever you think is best in the moment. Let's get into what abortion abolitionism is exactly. So can you just, like, what are the basics? Just lay it out for us. Assume we know nothing, because I don't think many of us do. So just walk us through it. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's familiar with the pro-life movement, right? Especially since Roe versus Wade 50 years ago, the pro-life movement's been fighting for life, right? That's what pro-life means, for life. So kind of your average pro-life voter, pro-life person would say, I'm for life, right? That's what pro-life means to me. And that's literally what it means. What 
happens though is that you know we may say we're for life and a lot of us would have the same definition of that that means that i want to see abortion abolished i want to see it made not that it's going to be completely eradicated on earth right we're people have sinful natures we have laws against murdering people but people still murder each other but it is illegal to murder other at least born human beings so that's what we mean by abolish just like slavery is abolished in this country but there's still some people who are enslaved even in our country but but it is illegal to do that so that's what we mean by abolishing abortion and i think most pro-life people would say yeah i want to see abortion abolished i don't want to see babies killed before they're born or after they're born however the issue is and kind of the difference between what i would call the pro-life lobby that is the pro-life yeah those who are writing the bills those who are pushing the bills those who are advocating litigating the bills kind of the legal end of the pro-life movement, the end goal has been, I would say, not to abolish abortion. I know this may surprise a lot of people, but it's not been to abolish abortion. It's been to close all the clinics and abolish abortionists performing abortions. Because every single law, virtually every single law the pro-life movement has passed since 1973 have all had exceptions written into them that says this law does not apply to the mother, which means that a mother performing an unassisted abortion, she has no legal, either civil or criminal liability whatsoever, which for a long time, you know, that may have not have been a major deal since that wasn't a big option. I mean, I think it was a big deal principally, but as far as practically speaking, it may not have been but today, we have abortion pills that people can order online, get them delivered to their home, and have a do-your-own-abortion-at-home, and it's very easy and simple to do, and there's no liability for that. So now, today, we have 14 or 15 states that, after Dobbs, claim to be abortion-free, and yet mothers in those states can still order these pills and do these abortions at home, and the pro-life laws allow for it. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's one of the reasons why, as an abolitionist, I say, no, abortion needs to be illegal for everybody, right? I got to say that I'm an abolitionist, and one thing that that means is that I believe that murdering anyone should be illegal for everyone. And that's not something that the pro-life movement, and by that I mean the pro-life lobby, can say. Their bills do not make murdering anyone illegal for everyone. So that's called equal protection, right? The same laws that protect my life should protect a life in the womb. So that's what abolitionists believe. Abolitionists, we also seek to come at this as Christians, using God's word, using the Christian ethic, and approach this as Christians for the gospel as well, for the glory of God. So yes, we believe in using science, we believe in using reason, we believe in appealing to those things, but fundamentally, we have to be appealing to the only absolute, perfect, inerrant authority, and that's God's word, and that's God himself. And that's something that, generally speaking, the pro-life organizations, that is the pro-life establishment, lobbying organizations, are unwilling to do. Many of them are Christians who are running those organizations, but they're not using Christianity as the basis for their arguments. In fact, whenever people accuse them, well, wait a second, you're just making a religious argument, they're all like, whoa, 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 no, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not. I'm making a secular scientific argument. So let me jump in there and ask a question about that, because my guess is that the pro-life lobbying organizations and the leadership of National Right to Life or these other big groups would say the reason they're doing that is they're trying to build a consensus. They're trying to build a coalition, and they would love Christians to be a part of it, but they're also trying to make a case that people who aren't Christians can enthusiastically get on. Because while probably most pro-life people in America identify with Christianity to some extent, there are people who aren't Christian who are pro-life. There are atheists who are pro-life. So are you saying that something specific to the abortion abolition movement is that it's only for Christians and that you're not trying to build an argument that can draw in people who don't profess faith in Christ? It's certainly something that people who don't profess faith can agree with us on. But as abolitionists, yeah, we would say it is a movement of Christians. And the reason is, yes, we want to save babies, we want to save children, we want to see abortion abolished, but we believe that's in some ways a secondary goal, right? The primary goal is preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, glorifying God, and we believe by that, then hearts will be led to true repentance, 
and then led to abolish abortion. So we see kind of the abolition of abortion, the saving of babies, really secondary to the goal of proclaiming the gospel and glorifying God. That's how God works from the inside out. God changes people's hearts by preaching repentance, by exposing sin, and we recognize our need for a Savior. And by the grace of God, He's provided a Savior for everyone who's murdered their child or had anything to do with that at all. God's merciful and all who come to Him in repentance, He saves. And so that's what we believe needs to be at the heart of our message, because we can win the whole world and save the whole world, but if people's souls are lost, what have we accomplished? So my understanding is that one of the distinctives of the abortion abolition movement is that you believe, or whoever holds to this, believes that a mother who has the abortion should be prosecuted under the law, just like the doctor or the father or anybody else who is an accessory to that abortion. I might state it a little bit differently. You know, we believe that constitutionally, I'll state kind of the biblical term and the constitutional, but constitutionally, we believe the 14th Amendment says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. All right, well, you know, pretty much every pro-life person should say, well, yeah, I believe a fetus is a person from fertilization. What laws do you have to have equal protection on? Well, the 14th Amendment makes it clear earlier, at the very least, laws protecting life, liberty, and property well, obviously, protecting life here. So every state is required for its laws protecting life to provide equal protection to every single person in the state. So what are our laws protecting life? Those are called homicide laws, protecting life you know, from criminally being taken. Well, those laws need to provide equal protection to all persons. So, for example, in Texas, we have, and this is the way in a lot of states, it's actually, we have life is defined, a person is defined as beginning at the moment of fertilization in Texas law. But then we have an exception written into our murder law that says this does not apply to an unborn child by conduct committed by the mother of that unborn child. And that's written right into our homicide chapter. And that's to prevent any kind of prosecution of any mother for any kind of involvement in her own abortion. So we believe in getting rid of that, right? We believe in taking away the discrimination against preborn children, preborn persons, and for all homicide laws to apply to everybody equally, then yes, that would make mothers and everybody else subject to prosecution for any kind of homicide of a preborn child. And then it would be up to the justice system to decide on a case-by-case basis, all right, should this person be prosecuted? What should the charges be? And then you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you know there's a presumption of innocence you have to overcome, the government has to overcome that, and then a jury of your peers decide whether to indict, decide whether to sentence. Then you have all the courts and appellate courts, and even the governors or boards of parole and pardons can choose to pardon people, right? That entire justice system would then come into play. But the first step is removing discrimination in our laws. So it it takes me back to the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump is on the set with Chris Matthews, and he's interviewing him. And I think Chris Matthews asks him about abortion asks him if he's pro-life and Donald Trump says that there should be some form of punishment for women, the mothers who have these abortions. And immediately afterwards, you know, everybody starts spinning that statement because it was clear that Donald Trump was out of step with the pro-life movement as largely defined, right? As what we think of as the pro-life movement, because all these national organizations came out and said, no, that's not what we believe. We do not think that mothers should be prosecuted for murder. So help me understand the differences between your position and the larger pro-life movement. At first, when I heard abortion abolition, I thought maybe you were a subset of the pro-life movement, like you were the Navy SEALs of the pro-life movement. But I don't think that's true, right? You don't consider yourself a part of that organization, that movement. I mean, you consider yourself pro-life in a general way that you're for life, but you have some sharp disagreements with the pro-life leadership. Can you help us understand those? Like, what are the debates over? What are the disagreements over you have with them? Yeah. So, you know, whenever Trump came out and said that during the primary, I think the reason that he said that is because he was kind of new to being pro-life and the pro-life movement. So he just kind of said whatever seemed logical to him at the time, which is that, yeah, of course, if you're truly going to end abortion, there has to be some kind of penalty for the mother. Otherwise, 
can't she just do it, you know, unassisted, right? Can't she just continue to do it without there being a penalty? So I think that was this kind of just logical assumption. And then instantly, like you said, we saw the, the pro-life movement came out and they said, that's not pro-life. And to me, that was a big moment. You know, he quickly retracted what he said. You know, he said, well, I've been informed otherwise. You know, I didn't mean that. But I think that what happened there when the pro-life movement, by which we mean the pro-life lobby, you know, really came out and said like, hey, that's not pro-life. To me, that was kind of a moment like, wait, it's not pro-life to make it illegal to kill your own child? Isn't it illegal to kill your one-year-old? Why not illegal to kill your child a month before the child's born? And so to me, that is a big difference between, you know, pro-life and abolitionist that you saw right there. Pro-life movement saying that's not pro-life to make it illegal for mothers to kill their pre-born children. It's like, well, no, I do think it should be illegal for mothers to kill their pre-born children. And I think a lot of people who call themselves pro-life would agree. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Traditionally, the pro-life movement has said that they've wanted punishment against the doctors. And so that's the way they've criminalized it is to say, let's target doctors, but not mothers. Because again, the traditional arguments that you're pushing back against have said that the mothers are second victims in this. And so we're not going to punish a victim. What's wrong with that? What are people missing who think that way? I mean, the biggest problem is it's overgeneralization. That is that there certainly are mothers who are victims, but the laws that the pro-life movement writes says that all mothers are victims. I mean, you could have the president of Planned Parenthood herself get an abortion and the pro-life law says you can't prosecute her. Or you could have an abortionist abort their own child and the pro-life law says she can't be prosecuted for that. Right, People who are clearly not victims still can't be prosecuted because of pro-life laws. You know, that's not the case. And again, I think also saying that writing laws that say all women are victims, because that's what they say, I think it's insulting to women. I think it treats all women as if they are not free moral agents, that they're not strong enough or smart enough to be making their own decisions. I think it treats them as if they're not just as much human beings with a sin nature as anybody else. So I think it's insulting to women whenever the pro-life movement does that. The pro-life movement says all women are victims, right? Abolitionists say some women are victims. Some women are not victims, just like homicide of born children, right? Some women are, some women are not. How do we figure out who is? Well, we have a justice system, right? We presume that everyone is a victim, right? That they are innocent. And then you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they're not. All we're saying is that the same thing should apply here. So in abortion abolition legislation that you've advanced or that you've advocated for, are there any exceptions? I wouldn't call them exceptions. Yeah, I wouldn't call them exceptions. But what about the life of the mother? If a mother's forced into it, then she has not intentionally done something. and She's not a criminal. She's under what the law calls duress. Well, then, yeah, she shouldn't be prosecuted. And our laws say that. Our bills say that. Or if a mother's medical emergency, right, and doctors have 
to treat them both like patients, try to save as many as possible, but then they do what they need to do that may result in the death of a child, but it's not intentional. They're just trying to save as many patients as they can. Well, yeah, clearly no crime has been committed there either, and our bills say that as well. Again, I would not call those exceptions. Those are trying to save lives, and those are not abortion in that case, I would say. One of the other differences between your movement and the general pro-life movement, at least if I got it right, is that you're against incrementalism, I think, and the pro-life movement has generally been for it. So let me see if I can say what I think I've always believed, and then you help me understand where I might be wrong. Is I've always said I would love to live in a world where there's no abortions, but we're not there. We don't have the votes for that. We don't have the court system to declare that. Therefore, whatever steps we can do to eliminate as many abortions as possible, that's awesome. So if one state has a 20-week ban and they are willing to lower it to 10 weeks, then great. Let's take that. If they're willing to lower it to six weeks, great. If we have a waiting periods for abortion or if, you know, some of the legislation calls for doctors to have admitting privileges at a hospital and those kind of slow down the number of abortions and limit the number of abortion clinics that can be out there, great, I'm for that. But my understanding is that your movement doesn't believe in incrementalism. It kind of believes in an all or nothing approach. What do I have wrong there? Well, I wouldn't call it an all or nothing. Really, what it comes down to is a couple things. First of all, what does God say? Right? We've got to do what God says. We certainly can't do something God tells us not to do. One thing that God says throughout Scripture is when he's talking to civil officials, when he's talking to judges, when he's talking to people who are enforcing laws, he says, you should not be partial in judgment, or you shall not show partiality in judgment. What does that mean? What is partiality? Well, the Hebrew word there is you should not regard faces. And a lot of people have seen like statues of you know Lady Justice holding the scales of justice and maybe a sword as well. And she's got this blindfold on. And the reason why justice has a blindfold on is because justice is supposed to be blind, right? You're not supposed to be making a decision based upon, well, is this a man or is this a woman? Is this person white or is this person black? Is this person strong or weak or ugly or beautiful or what have you, right? We're supposed to be deciding whether someone's guilty or not guilty of a crime based upon the facts of the case. What did they do and what was their mental state, right? What was their intent whenever they did that? That's how we decide cases. And the problem with a lot of these bills is that they say, no, 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 you have to remove the blindfold and you have to say, is this victim born yet or not? Okay, well, that's going to change justice. Or is this perpetrator, is this the father or is this the mother? Or is this this person or that person? Do they have this identity or that identity? Right now we're judging the case, not based on the facts of the case. We're judging it on the identity of the perpetrator and the victim in the case. God says, don't do that. God says, you shall not do that. He says he hates unequal weights and measures. We should not be doing that. And the problem is that's what we're codifying in the pro-life laws, the pro-life bills that we pass. We say, oh, no, 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 you should, because you should prosecute. All these people are prohibited from doing it. Oh, but not the mom if the victim is not yet born. So now we're judging not based on the facts, but upon that. God says, don't do that. The other problem with a lot of these bills is they end up conceding principles. And we think that we're advancing the cause here of pro-life and advancing the cause of saving children, but we're actually conceding arguments. We're conceding principles. And we're actually kind of taking one step forward and two steps back. And maybe we get a short-term victory, but it ends up being a long-term defeat because we end up conceding the humanity of these children. Whenever we pass a 20-week bill, for example, a bill that says, hey, you cannot abort a child after 20 weeks, probably doesn't save any children, really, because people just get their abortions a little bit faster. you know. And we still say every child can still be legally killed by their mother or by an abortionist. It just has to be done faster. Well, I mean, that does not further our primary argument, which is that a fetus is a human being with human rights entitled to the same human rights as another human being. Instead, what that looks like and what the pro-abortion movement calls the pro-life movement out on is that looks like you're just regulating healthcare, 
right? That doesn't look like you're treating this like a human being. That just looks like you're regulating healthcare and you're just trying to control women. That's a problem. And South Carolina actually, I think they've just had an opinion, but they were hearing a heartbeat case last year about a heartbeat bill and they actually overturned it. The Supreme Court there overturned it because they said it violated the right to privacy there. But one of the justices, it was a three to two decision. So one justice who could have flipped it basically said, I would have ruled the other way if this were a law that actually treated a fetus as a human being. Well, then, yeah, obviously, you know, your right to life as a human being trumps a right to privacy. But this law is just regulating healthcare. It's just saying when you can get this procedure done. It's not treating a fetus like a human being. So I think by conceding arguments like we do in a lot of these bills, conceding the humanity of the child, conceding that it's okay to kill them at some point by some people, ultimately we're losing ground. If we were to criminalize, if abortion was to be criminalized in the way that you advocate for so that mothers would be prosecuted along with other people who are accessory to that crime, I just don't know how practically it works. Let me put it that way, right? Because now all of a sudden we're going to have to have the government monitoring who's pregnant and if that pregnancy comes to an end, was that natural, you know, a miscarriage or was that something that was terminated through an abortion? What are the circumstances behind that? Does it seem practical? I mean, how would that work out? Wouldn't that just concede a lot of power to the government to be involved in people's lives? I mean, I know I'm starting to sound like a pro-choice advocate by saying that. I get it. It's (laughs) messy. I can hear it in my own words. And yet to criminalize abortion this way, I mean, the government's going to have a lot of power. Well, I don't think so. I mean, kind of get into the last point first and then backing up. As far as the government having power, if the government does not have authority to prosecute murder, then what's the reason to even have a government, right? I mean, that is the primary function of government. We even see biblically in Genesis 9 when God, I believe, first delegates this kind of authority to human government. It's for the protection of innocent life for justice for homicide. So, I mean, that is the government's primary role. So I'm not an anarchist. I think government should have limited powers, but at the very least, government should be providing justice for homicide. But backing up a little bit, I think that as you talk about like, well, the government's going to be monitoring all these people and that sort of thing. Two things about that. You know, first of all, there's kind of three functions of the law. You know, the first is to serve as a tutor, right? It's didactic, it's to teach people something and what an abolition bill does it teaches people that hey a fetus is a person deserving is the same rights as anybody else right now we don't have any laws that do that (laughs) that teach people that so that's what the law would do first secondly the law is to serve as a deterrent right it's to deter people from committing conduct that we've deemed criminal in this case that god has deemed criminal that is murder a lot of people when they think about abolishing abortion and wait a second mothers could be subject to prosecution if they abort their children And they're thinking about all the friends and family and people that they know who have had something to do with an abortion. And they're like, wait, I can't imagine my sister-in-law or my mother or sister in Christ at church being prosecuted for an abortion. I think we have to remember that no one's talking about going backwards and prosecuting people who've had abortions in the past. No, that would be unjust and wrong and unconstitutional. We're talking about going forward. So that means that there would be a law on the books that would have pretty serious penalties if enforced all the way. Um, that would deter most of these people from ever having an abortion in the first place. That's why there's many abolitionist women who are post-abortive. They have aborted their own children in the past. They've repented, have forgiveness from God, but they say, I wish it had been a crime because then I never would have done it. There's no way I would have, have risked that. I would have figured something else out and I never would have done it, right? That's what we want. We don't want to go prosecuting mothers or anybody else for doing this. What we want to see is people not getting abortions, not aborting their own children. Then the third function of the law is then justice. That is, okay, someone's not been taught by the law or, you know, that wasn't good enough. They still want to go through with it. All right. Now they haven't been deterred by the potential penalties there and they've gone ahead and they've gone through with this. All right. Well then, yeah, this child is entitled to justice. What does that justice look like? We have an entire justice system to figure that out. Um, you know, so, so would it, would it look like the government monitoring everybody? No, it would just simply be life would continue as it is now. If someone suspected someone else, that someone else had aborted their child, 
then they would report that to law enforcement. Law enforcement could then do some investigating, but they couldn't really do anything intrusive because you have to have a warrant for that. You know, they couldn't like seize someone's phone or go look at their app history or, or what have you. They'd have to have a warrant for that. They have to go to a judge and get a warrant from a judge to then do those kind of intrusive things. But if there's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed, a judge will give them that. Then they can go do that more investigation. And if they get enough evidence, they think there's enough. If the prosecutor agrees, they can take it to a grand jury of our peers who will then look at the evidence and decide, is there a case here? Is there a probable cause to believe a crime has been committed? Then that goes on. You know, it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Kind of what I talked about earlier. So I, I think the whole idea that this is going to turn into some, you know, nanny state, you know, with the government that has to monitor all of our devices and everything and all of our period tracking apps and all that sort of thing, I think is really just a farce. That's not the way things happen now. And our justice system wouldn't allow for that. The traditional pro-life movement has tried to figure out why do women have abortions? And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons from the shout your abortion type all the way down to people under great duress and manipulation and pressure. And there's all kinds of reasons. But I think most people would say that at least one big reason, not the only reason, is economic. You know, that there's a sense in which kids are expensive. I mean, you know it better than any of us, right? Kids are expensive. <laughs> and so right. there's been proposals like Elizabeth Brunig, who's at the Atlantic now, a pro-life Catholic, has said, let's make giving birth free. Or Mitt Romney, Senator Romney from Utah, had a whole plan of starting aid to the child before the child was born, in a sense, recognizing the humanity of the child. Does the abortion abolition movement get excited and advocate for those kinds of measures that would make abortion less appealing or attractive or necessary, however you want to frame it? I think ultimately, when we say what is the primary cause of abortion, and yes, certainly there are people under duress and things like that, but right, the primary cause for people who are not under duress, it's ultimately sin. It's ultimately sin. We were willing to engage in something that we know is sinful because of selfish reasons, right? Or prideful reasons. Saying that something is because of economic reasons ultimately gets materialistic, especially in a country like ours, right? In a country like ours where there's so many safety nets and there's so many people ready to adopt. I know people talk about the number of children in foster care and that they're not adopted. But no, 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 we're talking about infants, right? The number of people that are on waiting lists to adopt infants right now is enormous. And many people wait years for that. And so the number of people that are ready, willing, and able to adopt infant children and provide for them is more than enough, I believe, to cover the extra births, if you will. And what I am a big believer in is fathers need to be accountable for providing for their offspring, right? For caring for the women that they impregnate and caring for their offspring. And I'm absolutely for fathers having more accountability to do that and not getting away with not fulfilling their responsibilities there. I'm also for the church doing more. I think the church needs to do more to care for people, to reach out to people, to provide practical help to people. I'm not for more government programs, more kind of impersonal entitlement programs and things like that. I don't think they're ultimately the most helpful. And I think they create a lot of problems. But I think there are a lot of solutions that are out there, though. So what's the goal of the abortion abolition movement? Am I right in saying that there would be no abortions or is it? something else like what's the goal you guys know you have succeeded you're aiming for what i don't mean to sound trite but i mean ultimately the goal is to glorify god and i believe this is what god tells us to do god says that in leviticus that if the people of the land close their eyes to someone who is sacrificing their own children that god will judge that person who's sacrificing their children and he'll judge the people of the land who are ignoring it god says to rescue those who are being carried to the slaughter so I believe we have a duty as Christians, and it kind of gets you back to the basic, love God, and Jesus says, love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? As yourself. Okay, well then, if I were being led to slaughter, what would I want people to do? And if the laws allowed for my mother to kill me or for someone else to kill me, what would I want? Jesus says, love your neighbor. How? As yourself. Okay, well, what are the laws protecting my life? Those are the laws I want protecting these babies' lives as well. So ultimately, that's what it's about. It's about being obedient to God. It's about loving our neighbor as ourselves, both the mothers 
Because again, there's nothing loving about telling mothers that it's legal to kill your children. There's nothing loving about that at all. It's loving to tell them, no, it's illegal to do that. That's going to be bad for you. That's going to be bad for your child. That's not good. And it's certainly loving for that child to say that. So that's ultimately what it's all about. You know, as I talk to you, I knew this was going to happen. There's a lot of what you say that I find logical and consistent and consistent with human nature, consistent with scripture. There's something about it that's appealing and attractive. But here's where I come down and I'm just going to kind of verbalize it and get your input because I'm open to try to figure this issue out and to change my mind if that's necessary. But my fear is that because of the broken world we live in and because the United States culture right now is where it is, that what you're advocating is actually unintentionally going to lead to more permissive abortion laws. Because I think what people hear is they hear this, what they deem, I know you don't think of it this way, and I don't even necessarily think of it this way, but they hear this extreme movement. And it's painted as, both fairly and unfairly, as not providing basic exceptions that the vast majority of Americans in the electorate want. Whether it's rape and incest or prosecuting the mother sounds just, they just can't even picture doing that. Taking this woman who's just been through an abortion and then putting her in jail. I mean, there's no have a category for that. And so what happens is people go, okay, abortion abolitionists, they're going to take power. I've got to prevent that. And so we end up having more permissive abortion laws and actually more abortions. Again, I know that's the last thing you want, but I feel like if we played a more moderate hand, if we just said, look, I don't want this. I'd love for there to be zero abortions. And someday when Christ sets up his kingdom here, that's what it'll be. But for now, I can't get that. And so I just live in this broken world and I just got to work for less abortions, the fewer abortions as possible. And if I play a more moderate hand, realizing what's possible right now, then there actually could be fewer abortions. Now, I won't be as logically consistent, which I think your position is very logically consistent. I give you that. My position isn't as logically consistent, but I think in the end, there are fewer abortions. And I think in your position is more logically consistent, but unfortunately, and again, unintentionally, there are actually going to be more abortions. I'm sure you've heard this before. I mean, I'm not coming yeah. up with something new. Well, I mean, it's just certainly something that I've wrestled with. And ultimately, here's why I come down. I mean, there are a number of things that you said there that I would have said myself in the past. And that is, you know, that we just can't get there. It's not possible, right? If we do this, then this is going to happen in the future. You know, I don't mean to... Don't hold back. Make this too simplistic or to say that you don't have faith or anything like that. But, sure. you know, I think ultimately as Christians, we need to stop trying to predict the future and we need to stop talking about what's possible and what's not possible with my God and with yours, too. And I know you know this, too, and you would say the same thing with God. All things are possible. You know, when the children of Israel came up to the Jordan River to go in the promised land, they sent in 12 spies. And 10 of the spies came back and said, hey, listen, there are giants in that land. And we're like grasshoppers, you know, basically said like they're going to squash us like bugs. OK, <laughs> you know, like every practical measure we're going to lose here. But two spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, and they said, God is with us. God is with us. He's promised us this land. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. He's promised us this land. He says he's going to give it to us. So let's go in. Let's go in and do it. They're going to be our bread, which means they're not going to consume us. We're going to consume them. And so I would say the same thing here. What does God tell us to do? Right? He tells us, don't show partiality. He says, rescue those. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we look around and we see, yeah, God, I get that's what you're saying, but that just doesn't seem realistic. You know what? My God is in control of reality. Okay? He's in control of the future. And it's not my job as a Christian to predict the future and to try to adjust or compromise how I approach things based upon my own predictions, you know, many of which are wrong, but certainly they're all denying that ultimately God's sovereign over the future. And so that's where I come down on this issue that I could see this doing exactly what you're saying, that ultimately people end up using our positions to twist what we're doing and to make the entire anti-abortion movement extreme, and that, that then pushes the more nominal Christians or the non-Christian parts of society away from this and more toward killing children. Or, you know, the opposite could happen. It could be that 
the consistency is seen and people really see what they're doing and they begin repenting and we see a natural revival because of our consistency, right? That could also happen. Both of those things are possibilities. And there's an infinite number of possibilities between and beyond those things. I say duty is ours, results are God's. And, and so I think we need to do what we're called to do. We're called to do God's will, God's ways. The ends don't justify the means. We have to have both biblical and righteous methods and ends, and then we trust God for the results. One thing I appreciate about you, Bradley, is that you're fair, you're compassionate, you are sincere, you're trying to be faithful to what God has called you to do. I don't know if I'm convinced right now, but you've given me, I'm sure a lot of other people, a lot to think about. Where would people go to find out more about abortion abolitionism? What are some resources that you would recommend? Yeah, they can go to our website, faa.life, Foundation to Abolish Abortion, faa.life. They can follow us on Twitter, Abolitionist FAA, or follow me on Twitter, Bradley W. Pierce. Would you mind closing by just praying for women and children and whatever else you think God has put on your heart? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are merciful. Lord, we are all sinners. We've all rebelled against you and hated your law and hated you. And Lord, you've been so merciful to us. You sent your own son to come and to pay the penalty for us, to save us from our sins. God, and I pray that everyone listening to this, God, has has followed you and has surrendered their lives to you. And anybody who hasn't, Lord, that they would repent and believe and follow you, Lord Jesus. God, for anyone who's listening to this who may have had an abortion or been involved with an abortion or helped with an abortion, Lord, that they would know that there's there's hope that if they confess their sin, Lord, you say that you are just to forgive, that that sin has been paid for. Lord, so I pray that they would come to you in repentance and that you would forgive their sins and free them from the bondage of that sin and from the guilt of that sin, Lord, and and show them that they are clean and their sins have been washed away and separated as far as the east is from the west in your eyes. Lord, you are the answer to abortion. You are the answer to every problem in this world. God, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, what our duties are and that we would surrender to you and submit to you and obey you and love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray that you would help each and every one of us to to know how to do that better. And Lord, that we would do it all for you. And God, I just thank you for this conversation you've allowed us to have here. And I pray it would be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Bradley. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.